Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Stadium Drive, located in southwest Fort Worth, Texas, is a quiet, middle-class neighborhood. Many of the residents on the street in 2001 were retired, spending their days looking out their windows and keeping tabs on their neighbors. The way it's been described to me almost makes it sound like a jump back through the decades to a time where everyone knew their neighbors and they watched out for each other. I'm reminded of many visits to my in-law's house where my mother-in-law would be distracted during our conversations. Half listening to me as she stared across the street, eventually she would share what had been drawing her attention away from our chat. You know that Glenna hasn't been home all day? wonder what she's up to. Breaks in routines like this would never go unnoticed on Stadium Drive. A simple act like not closing your garage door or not walking a visitor out to their car when they leave would raise an alarm. The tight-knit nature of the neighborhood is what led police to the front door of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney's house at 5.30 in the afternoon on November 2nd, 2001. Officers Gonzalez and Galusha were stunned when they walked to the door. They had just stepped into the aftermath of a violent double homicide. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lloyd Courtney, known by most as Smitty, was a fingerprint analyst for the Fort Worth Police Department when he retired in 1984. He had joined the force in 1952, just a few months after he married the love of his life, Agnes. In his early years as a cop, Smitty worked as a patrol officer, then as a motorcycle cop. He was stocky and strong. At 76 years old on the day he died, Smitty, at only 5 foot 8 inches tall, still weighed in at 189 pounds, and his frame was mostly muscle. He was the grandfather that you didn't want to challenge to an arm wrestling contest. Smitty spent 33 years working for the Fort Worth Police Department. Then, after he retired, he still worked as a civilian identification specialist part-time. He knew his job, and he knew it well. 
He was identifying people by their fingerprints long before the advent of computer technology to aid in the process, or even APHIS. Over the course of nearly five decades, Smitty put hundreds, if not thousands, of criminals behind bars. Smitty and Agnes were married for 50 years. Agnes was jokingly described to me by a family member as a troublemaker. After hearing stories of Agnes's feuding with a judge over the lighting in her office and her refusal to pay a contractor who was working on her closet because he didn't do a good enough job, I think that the word I would use to describe her would be feisty. Agnes spent all of her working years serving as a secretary at the local courthouse. She worked in the family court services department. She was known as a no-nonsense, tell-you-exactly-what's-on-her-mind kind of woman. The relationship between her and Smitty wasn't exactly what you would expect from a quote-unquote old-fashioned couple. Agnes's niece described her to me as, quote, very gently in charge. She said that any mention to Smitty about his wife's no-nonsense attitude, and he would always reply with a chuckle. And, uh, well, you know your Aunt Agnes. Smitty and Agnes had one biological daughter. Deborah was born on June 9, 1953, just a couple years into the Courtney's marriage. Debbie was an only child, that is, until her parents adopted another daughter, a 21-year-old daughter. The details regarding the adoption of Brenda are a little strange and a little difficult to follow. It went something like this, according to Agnes's niece. So Agnes had a sister named Benita. Benita had a son named Aaron. Aaron married a woman named Brenda. So to be clear, Brenda is Agnes's nephew's wife. Aaron and Brenda then had a daughter they named Sarah. Now what we know for a fact is that Brenda divorced Aaron, and then Agnes, who again is Aaron's aunt, adopted Brenda as an adult. I wish that I could better articulate the reasons why someone would adopt a 21-year-old woman with their own child, but a good explanation, honestly, is evading me at the time being. According to Agnes's niece, the purpose for the adoption was so that Sarah, Brenda's daughter, could become Agnes's granddaughter. Supposedly, Agnes actually convinced Brenda to divorce Aaron for exactly that purpose. I can't say that that is a fact, but that is what I've been told. So now, let's jump forward in time from the adoption to November of 2001. According to family members, Brenda had fallen out of favor with the Courtney's. She had remarried and no longer visited or came to any family functions. Debbie, on the other hand, was very close to her parents. She visited often, and Smitty and Agnes oftentimes came to her rescue. Debbie was married and had a daughter, but she suffered from some pretty severe depression. At one point, she had attempted suicide, and she had been diagnosed as bipolar. Because she often struggled to function, Agnes would at times go to Debbie's house and help out with cleaning and laundry. Then, sometimes on better days, Debbie would return the favor and help her mother with chores at her parents' house. Debbie's life was a bit of a mess in more ways than just one. She and her husband were also struggling financially. So much so that Agnes and Smitty had given them over $25,000 in order to help them catch up with their bills. It was not an uncommon occurrence for Agnes and Smitty to throw some money their way whenever they needed it. 
So that was life for the Courtney's on November 2nd, 2001. Agnes was retired and Smitty was semi-retired. He still worked every workday as a civilian identification specialist, but as I said, only part-time. He went to work every day at 1 p.m. They had, at that point, adopted a daughter who wasn't really part of their life anymore, and they had their biological daughter, Debbie, who they saw almost every day. Debbie was 48 years old at the time, short in stature and overweight, which comes into play later, because ultimately, she was charged and convicted of committing the gruesome crime that I'm about to describe to you. As always, over the next several weeks, we're going to break down this crime scene in extreme detail. But today, I'm just going to give you an overview of what happened on Stadium Drive, November 2nd, 2001. I want you to hear why this case is so perplexing to me. I'm not going to deny that the prosecution had a strong case against Debbie. There is most definitely evidence to suggest that she killed her parents. In fact, at a glance, the case almost seems open and shut. That is until you take a close look at the crime scene and try to wrap your brain around how Debbie could have committed these murders and why any single offender would carry out the attack in the manner that we see on the crime scene. It's uncontested that Debbie Perringer went over to her parents' house on the morning that they were killed. Her car was seen in the morning by neighbors, and she herself acknowledges that she was there. It's also uncontested that Agnes went to a local produce market that morning to get groceries. But the timing of these two incidents, however, is definitely in question. Both Debbie and neighbors claim that she left Agnes and Smitty's house around 10 a.m. But a woman named Barbara Parks told police that she spoke with Agnes at Parks and Produce at around 10 or 11 a.m. Since the produce market is about a 20-minute drive from the Courtney's house, it would seem that Agnes was alive and well after Debbie left that morning. But Debbie testified that her mother wasn't home when she arrived at her parents' house. According to her, Agnes arrived home with the groceries while she was there. So someone has their times wrong. Neighbors saw Debbie leave the house in the morning and noted at trial that she looked perfectly normal. They didn't notice any blood on her or anything like that. As I mentioned earlier, Smitty usually left for work at 1 p.m. But that afternoon, Mabel Zabo noticed that he never left the house. Mabel and her husband Joe lived directly across the street and had known the Courtney's for 31 years. They were immediately concerned that Smitty didn't leave at his normal time. Then at around 2 p.m., Mabel testified that she heard a dog howling from across the street. This was her second indicator that something may be wrong. It's also important to note here that at the time when the dog was barking, Deb had long since been gone. Mabel watched every movement in that neighborhood every day, and she knew things weren't right. At 5.30 p.m., someone in the neighborhood called the police and asked for a welfare check at Smitty and Agnes's house. Their break-in routine hadn't gone unnoticed, and the neighbors wanted to make sure they were okay. They weren't. Lucky. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mabel and Joe Zabo saw two police cars pull into the Courtney's driveway at around 5.30 p.m. Officers Gonzalez and Galusha knocked on the doors, both front and back, and both doors were locked and no one answered. After peering through some windows, Galusha noticed that there was a TV on in the living room and there appeared to be a purse dumped out on the floor near the kitchen. The officers then decided to cross the street over to the Zabo's house to ask them if they had seen the Courtney's. They hadn't, and Joe offered up a key to get into the house to Officer Galusha. And Officer Michael Galusha entered the house to find a bloodbath. Michael Galusha testified at Debbie's trial and described what he encountered when he entered the house. He testified that he didn't notice any signs of forced entry as he attempted to get into the house. As I said, both doors were locked, the garage door was closed, and all the windows were closed and locked with screens intact. After Mr. Zabo had given him the key to the house, Galusha had requested for EMS to make the scene along with a Sergeant Foster. According to his testimony, he requested the additional resources as a precaution in case someone was hurt inside. Officer Galusha entered the house through the front door. The deadbolt, he says, was locked. The front door opens into the living room. Within a few steps of entering, he noticed what appeared to be items from the coffee table scattered out on the floor. A few steps further, and he saw Lloyd Smitty Courtney lying on his back in a pool of blood in the dining room. Galusha called to the front door and asked Officer Gonzalez to send EMS personnel to check Smitty for vitals as he moved through the rest of the house. He went through the kitchen, down the hall, checked a couple bedrooms, and when he reached the back bedroom, he found Agnes. She was laying face down in what Galusha described as a pool of blood. Lloyd and Agnes Courtney had both been beaten and stabbed to death inside of their home. Smitty had endured seven cutting wounds, five of which were on his neck, 12 stab wounds, and he sustained at least 17 blunt force traumatic injuries. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Agnes also suffered seven cutting wounds and 15 stab wounds and 17 blunt force injuries herself, five of which were determined to be defensive in nature, and she was also pronounced dead at the scene. According to the ME, whoever killed the Courtney's delivered a total of 75 blows, and he testified that he would, quote, certainly expect the killer to be covered in blood. 
Now, let's take a closer look at the crime scene. The analysis that I'm about to give you is based solely on my first look at the crime scene photos. I've intentionally, up to this point, avoided reading the crime scene investigator's report. I wanted to look at the scene with fresh eyes. So this is my preliminary opinion of how the murders occurred, based solely on the crime scene photos and video. It appears that the attack began in the living room. The TV was left on and Lloyd's glasses were found on the cushions of the couch across from the TV. There's blood on the arm and the back of the couch. And the coffee table is pushed away from it with books and other items spilled onto the floor. The living room floor is scattered with blood spatter and shards of cast iron. It appears as though the initial attack began with Lloyd being hit over the head multiple times with a cast iron skillet while he was on the couch. The skillet shattered into many small pieces during the attack. Now, if I'm right about this being the beginning of the attack, then this could be our first clue. The skillets, four were used in the murders in total, were determined to have been Agnes's, which means they came from the Courtney's kitchen. Now, number one, this indicates that the killer did not come prepared with murder in mind. They didn't bring any weapons. And secondly, we have to ask ourselves, who would be in the kitchen when Lloyd was sitting on the couch watching TV? Now, there are a lot of possibilities here. It's possible that Lloyd did get up from the couch and retreated from the kitchen to the living room, or that he was never on the couch at all, and that's just where he ended up after retreating from the killer. It's possible that there were multiple offenders and someone forced Lloyd to stay on the couch while a second retrieved the pan, but that seems unlikely considering that there is no indication that the offender or offenders had any other weapons other than what they found in the house to threaten him with to keep him on the couch. More likely, in my opinion, is option number one, or that Lloyd knew the person in the kitchen and wasn't concerned with what they were doing in there. It looks to me like Lloyd was likely knocked unconscious from the blows he sustained on the couch. I say that because at some point he made his way about 20 feet from the living room to the dining room where it appears he was trying to call 911. I'll get back to that in a minute, but the point here is that my observation is that he was left alone in the living room after the initial attack. I believe that after the killer incapacitated Lloyd, they then moved from the living room to the dining room, through the kitchen, down the hall, and into the back bedroom where Agnes was taking a nap. Now, this is assuming that there was only one killer, which to be honest, I'm not entirely sure of at this point. Agnes was attacked with at least two cast iron skillets from what I can see. There are pieces of skillet everywhere, and there's even half of a pan stuck into the drywall by the headboard of the bed. The bed itself was covered in blood, as is a pillow that was found on the ground. Agnes's body was discovered laying face down with her head and her left arm partially underneath the bed. And as Officer Galusha described, she was indeed lying in a large pool of blood. The attack on Agnes was not only brutal, but also one hell of a struggle. It looks like she was beat over the head with a frying pan while laying in bed, then got up and began to fight. At one point, the blood pattern suggests that her killer pinned her behind the door to the room. While bleeding profusely, Agnes was standing between the door and the wall. 
Now, the details about all of her and Lloyd's injuries will have to wait until we dig into the autopsies. So at this point, I can't say when they were stabbed and cut in relation to when they were beaten with the skillets. And honestly, right now, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around this being a lone offender. There are at least two shattered skillets in the bedroom from what I can see, maybe three. And Agnes was also stabbed and cut over 20 times. So did the killer enter the bedroom with two cast iron skillets in hand and a knife? Did they make two or three trips back to the kitchen as the pans were shattering? And why keep grabbing more skillets? Once they realized that they were just shattering and not having the desired result, why go get more? Why not choose something else? It's questions like these that led me to agreeing to take on this case. And I'm going to need your help to figure this one out. While the attack on Agnes was occurring, Lloyd made his way from the living room into the dining room. It appears that he managed to get a hold of the phone that was hanging on the wall with his bloody hands when the killer caught back up to him. Here we find more fragments of yet another skillet, a knocked over broken accent table, and Lloyd's body, covered in blood, the phone receiver still in his bloody hand. And the blood spatter indicates that this is where the second attack on Lloyd began and ended. He was beaten and stabbed to death, and the phone cord was cut. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At this point, both Lloyd and Agnes were gone. But the killer wasn't done. Either the offender was trying to find something... Or they were trying to stage the house to make it appear as though they were looking for something. The contents of Agnes's purse were spread out on the counter. Her wallet was open and did not contain any cash. As far as the layout of the house, the garage, which the garage door was closed, but it opened up into the laundry room. And the door from the garage into the laundry room and the door from the laundry room into the dining room where Lloyd was found were both open. And inside that laundry room, a trash can was knocked over with its contents spilled out onto the floor. And strangely, the lid to the trash can is missing. Then, in one of the bedrooms, the top drawer of a dresser is pulled out and laying on the floor. But only that one drawer. And in the bedroom where Agnes was killed, the computer and printer were pulled off the desk and onto the floor. Was the killer looking for something? Or was all of this just staging, a forensic countermeasure? My list of questions is getting longer and longer. And aside from all the other oddities found at this crime scene, there's one big one that's going to make your head spin. On Lloyd's dead body, stabbed into his right thigh with a paring knife, was a note left by the killer. The note is typed onto a typical 8.5 by 11 piece of printer paper 
and it reads, quote, Hey, look what I learned to do in prison. Thanks for the memories, you sorry goddamn motherfucking son of a bitch. You should watch who you let in your door. Ha 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 ha. The note itself, aside from what it says, is interesting. It appears that it was typed in a hurry. Let me just break down for you how it's typed. So it says, hey, then a double space, then look what I learned to do in prison. There's no period, but about five spaces after prison. Then thanks, not capitalized, for the memories. Then another double space. Then you sorry goddamn spelled as one word, G-O-D-D-A-M-N, motherfucking, again, all one word and no G at the end, then son of a bitch, again, spelled as one word, S-O-N-O-F-A-B-I-T-C-H, and no period at the end. Then the note drops down two lines and reads, you should watch who you let in the door, capital Y at the beginning, but no period at the end, double space, then Ha, 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 ha. No capital H at the beginning. At first glance, I thought this must be written by someone who does a lot of texting. I see this same pattern in some work my kids type for school. They're so used to their iPhones adding a period and capitalizing the next sentence when they hit a double space that they often forget to do it themselves. But then I remember that this was 2001. I don't know exactly when texting became a thing, but I vividly remember when I received my first text message. It was 2005, and I had no idea what was happening when the message came to my phone. And even then, texting was done by pressing each number on your keypad multiple times. There was no such thing as a double tap on the space bar to end one sentence and begin another. So that takes me back to my original assessment that the note was typed hastily after the murders, probably on the computer in the back room that was later thrown on the ground. But there's a problem with that theory, too. Now, the note is laying open on Lloyd's leg, again, stabbed into his leg with a paring knife. But it's obvious from the creases in it that it had been previously folded into quarters, like someone had it in their pocket. There are intersecting fold marks that run down the middle of the page in both directions, so it obviously had been folded up. I can't seem to make sense of someone killing Agnes and Smitty then sitting at their computer just a few feet away from Agnes's body while they typed the note, and then folding the note up, walking to the dining room, unfolding it, and then stabbing it into Smitty's leg. But I'm also having a hard time imagining someone typing the note at home, planning the murders, then going to the house without any weapons, and then using everything but the kitchen sink to kill the Courtney's. There's no question that we have a lot of work to do on this case. It's like no case that we've ever investigated before. I'll tell you right up front, it is far from an obvious wrongful conviction. But it's also a very long way from lining up with the state's theory of the case. The case was brought to me by Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas. I'm going to let her explain why she asked the Truth and Justice team to help her get to the bottom of it a little bit about the case that you brought to us? Yes, absolutely. This is the case of Deborah Perringer. Back in November of 2001, 
Deb's parents, Agnes and Lloyd Courtney, were brutally murdered in their house in Fort Worth. A little bit more than a year later, Deb was sent to prison for the rest of her life for their murders. There were many red flags that I had going through the case, things that didn't make sense. And as I got further and further into the case, I realized that this might be something that's perfect for the truth and justice crowd. So how was the case originally brought to you? There were a couple of ways that this case was brought to us, actually. First, there was a DNA analyst who we work with a good deal and who I consider to be a close friend of mine. And she told me about this crazy case that she had been reading about. I don't know how she found out about the case. She told me about this case that she'd been reading about and how there were a lot of things with the DNA testing in the case that were not congruent with her understandings of DNA. Um, In other words, there was just a bunch of stuff in there that didn't make sense to her from her perspective as a DNA analyst. And that really disturbed her because she thought that that had been one of the things that had sent this woman to prison. So while that's going on, then we were approached by Deb's great aunt. Deb's great aunt is a lady who is a judge on a court of appeals here in Texas. And she actually was a judge on the court of appeals that I clerked for. I didn't clerk for that judge in particular, but I was on that court. I knew that judge. And so she approached Mike Ware and me. She, she approached both of us independently telling us how we really need to look at her niece's case, her great niece's case, because she's in prison and she knows that she didn't do it. So this was the, I believe, the sister of the mom. It's interesting that one of the people that brought it to you was a DNA analyst, because there, as we, as we get deeper into the case, we're going to find that the DNA evidence was really a stanchion of the state's case against Deb Perringer. Yes, that's correct. That's what bothered the DNA analyst so much is that the DNA evidence that the state used was very damaging, very damning evidence against Deb, and she didn't think that it was accurate. So this case is interesting. It's a little different for me as far as a case that I'm investigating and for our audience and kind of our relationship with IPTX in that typically when we start a case, it's a case that, you know, when we did Jesse Eldridge's case, for example, or George Powell's case, it's a case that you guys have been working for a long time and were convinced of the person's innocence when we brought when the case was brought to us. But this case is a little different because this is at the very beginning stages of your work on the case. So can you talk a little bit about why you want the Truth and Justice audience to, to engage in this case? The answer to that question is simple. You have resources that we don't have and that we need. Normally with these cases, the cases that you had referenced in so many of our other cases, we can look at the players, we can look at alternative suspects, we can see all of this in front of us and we can deal with this, right? Like we can go and talk to the witnesses, we can, we can do these things on our own. But in this case, we sat down, as you'll find out, and we got to looking at the victimology of Lloyd Courtney, of the man. And we realized that there were a whole lot of people who had motive to injure Lloyd and his wife, Agnes. And we got to looking at Agnes and we realized, you know, there were some people who who may have wanted to hurt Agnes too. And it got, I don't want to say out of control. It just very quickly exceeded the bounds of what we're able to do. So after we looked at everything and we realized that there are a variety of paths that need to be followed, a variety of angles that need to be looked at, we realized that we just don't have the resources for that scale of an investigation. But fortunately, we know somebody who does. 
and somebody who's really good at doing large-scale investigations. And of course, that's our friends over at Truth and Justice. So we came to you asking if you would present this case to your listeners to do an investigation, a full investigation of the case to run down all of the many different paths that need to be explored and to, to come back to us with, with whatever you find. There's no question that we have our work cut out for us. This case is not going to be easy, and I have to say up front that the end result may be that the right person was convicted of this horrible crime. But there's only one way to find out. Once again, I'm asking for all of you, as a collective group of tens of thousands spanning the entire globe, to join me in this investigation. I believe that if we put our heads together and give this case everything we've got, that we very well could help solve the double homicide of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. Welcome to Season 8 of Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Merb Gaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. 
I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.